Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. It is, uh, it's living and it's active. It's real. It's truth. It's sharper than a double-edged sword, Lord. It, uh, it's, it pierces our, our bone and our flesh, Lord, and divides us, Lord. Father, I pray this morning that you would divide us where we need to be divided, Lord. You would pierce our hearts where our par- hearts need to be pierced, Lord. Where there's hardness of heart in, in my heart and our hearts, Lord, that, that you would soften. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, just take these words that I've prepared and do more than what they are, Lord. And uh, Father, we ask for your spirits anointing as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So hey, th- three chapters in Titus, and it, it's, it's, uh, it kind of has a theme of godliness, the book of Titus. Um, chapter one very much talks about godliness within the church. Chapter two, very much about godliness within our homes and our and how our homes function. And chapter three kind of um, is about godliness in the world, in our community, and how that affects our lives as we live and serve as Christians, as we live in a, in a fallen world. As we come to Titus, we say, okay, so who's Titus? And, 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 and who's it written to? And where and why? And, and who's the writer? And all, all these little details, all the details as we come to a new book. And coming to Titus, uh, I ask these questions, who is this guy? As you cruise through the pages of Scripture, we'll see Titus pops up now and again in the New Testament. He's a, he's a faithful minister, the Apostle Paul describes him as. We see him with Paul in Galatians chapter 2. He says he's a Greek. Um, he was one of the men who, who delivered the second letter to the Corinthians. He's one of the guys who was entrusted with the collection for the, for the poor believers in Jerusalem. He was a trustworthy man, a faithful man. In fact, some scholars figure that if they lay kind of the timeline of of Corinthians and Galatians and all this stuff out, and you lay it over top the timeline of Acts, it's very possible that Titus was actually in Jerusalem with Paul at the time when they came before the Jerusalem council and and there was the Judaizers and they're adding all this uh, ceremonial law to serving Jesus and they said, no, no, it's not about that. And they, and they, they, they dropped the burden and they said, you know what, serving Jesus is simple. Abstain from sexual morality and abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols. Abstain from eating blood or the blood and the meat. Very simple. So he very likely was at that council, which is going to be interesting as you see some stuff that's, that's dealt with in the book of Titus. The island of Crete is where, he's, where the, the letter is written to or where Titus is sent to. Uh, if you pop up that slide there, Calvin. So you'll see Crete there is that island kind of in the, in the middle-ish of the Mediterranean there below uh, modern-day Greece. Let's see, Aegean Sea above it. Um, Crete was known as a wealthy um, island. As you can imagine, the trade routes of the day, uh, it would have been a great hub to have had, uh, you know, in our modern terms, logistics and warehousing. Um, so it was known to be wealthy. They had, you know, if all those trade routes from Italy and the rest of the Mediterranean and northern Africa, it's kind of a great mixing sorting yard to get all the way into the Aegean Sea and you can get all the way to where modern day Istanbul is at the bottom of the Black Sea and access to huge regions of the world. So it was a wealthy, wealthy place, a place that was known for its excess. Excess in life, excess in all things and great wealth. We'll see as we take a look at Titus the reason why we see that Paul likely had been there, planted some churches, there was new believers there, uh, there was probably believers that were converted in the day of, of Pentecost as well. If you were to go to Acts chapter 2, you would see that the account there talks about the people that were in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, and it includes Cretans. So th- there would have been a remnant of those guys, and, and Paul probably planted some churches there. And we'll see that Paul didn't really have the opportunity to, to necessarily finish up what he wanted to before he had to leave Crete. So he's sending Titus to come in and finish, finish the work that he had started. He's, he, he's going to talk about establishing leadership and order within the churches. 
So chapter 1 is kind of broken into a few sections. We'll see this introduction, and we'll see him talking about elders, and we'll see him talking about the issues in Crete. I'd like to just read through the chapter. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my one true child in a common faith, grace and peace from the God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or for greedy gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly and trustworthy to the word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Wow. This testimony is true. To the pure... Oh, sorry, I just skipped a verse. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both... but both their minds and their consciousnesses are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Wow. We see Paul starts off, and and he starts off with a fairly long introduction. He's going to establish doctrine and truth. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the elect... And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Paul identifies himself as the writer right off the, the, right off the hop. You know, I think it's... Sometimes we can, we can glaze over these things pretty quick, right? The, the first line, Paul, a servant of God. That's that Greek word we're familiar with, doulos, bondservant, a servant by choice. And when I think about the Apostle Paul, sometimes, it's, sometimes I can forget about Paul, that Paul was Saul, that Paul was Saul of Tarshish that he stood beside and held the coats while Stephen was stoned. The first martyr of the church. And then from there, he launched out in a campaign against Christians where he brutally tortured and imprisoned and, and tried to get people to renounce their faith. Saul was the guy saying, renounce Jesus or else. That's what Saul did. He was zealous for the law. He was zealous for the things of the Lord. And he's had an incredible transformation. We know what happened on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus saw, met him personally. And he was changed and transformed. And now he is a bondservant of God. He's gone from just being, he's gone from being a zealot and to a servant. Very, very different. a bondservant, and he serves in that role as an apostle, one sent by Jesus Christ. He's sent out for the good news. And though his purpose in ministry, his purpose in being sent out, is for the sake of the faith of the elect, their knowledge of the truth. He's talking about those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and those who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. His purpose, his aim. You know, the word, the word sake actually... Um, 
you know, we skip over these words in our language and we just go, okay. But it, one of the definitions is in order to achieve or to preserve. That's what stake means. Paul's goal, his aim in ministry is to achieve, can spread the gospel, the good news, and to preserve the faith of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, to build up, to encourage to reveal the knowledge in truth. It's interesting. To, our faith often is something that's a, much of a heart thing. We trust, we believe, we hope. And it's a head thing sometimes, our knowledge, isn't it? And they need to be kind of intermingled. But he's talking about affirming and building up faith in our hearts and our understanding of who God is. You know, we know faith is that the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen, to build up our faith, to build up our hope. There's something really interesting about knowledge of truth. You know, we understand that Jesus Christ is the, is the, is the line of truth. He is the definition of truth. He is the absolution of truth. And it says here that knowledge of truth accords with godliness and as the hope of eternal life. The knowledge of Jesus Christ and godliness are not separated they're linked. As we, as we learn about Jesus Christ, as we grow in the knowledge of our Savior, we move into a place of godliness. You know, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, it's a great hope, the truth of the gospel, is it not? We can think of the, the truth that we have a creator, that we live in a created world that our creator cannot handle sin, cannot handle imperfection. He cannot handle lies around him. He is truth. We know that you and I have missed the mark, have we not? Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we, as we reflect on the message of the gospel, we see Jesus Christ as our propitiation dying on the cross, his blood shed for us to wash our sins, to atone for our punishment. We see him raised from the dead, overcoming death, raised in victory, so that we can say that death no longer has a sting. That we can say as believers, when we trust in Jesus Christ, that we don't die, but we go to sleep. We go to be, to be out of this body is to be present with the Lord. It's great truth. It's great hope. It's the hope of eternal life. It's the hope of looking forward to Jesus coming again for his bride, the church, us. The knowledge of truth and eternal life, it's a gift with a responsibility. A responsibility towards godliness. And Paul's going to talk about godliness specifically first in the church and the leadership of the church in this little book. He talks about the reality of who God is in his introduction, does he not? He moves from eternal life and he says, God who never lies. It's not a God who normally doesn't lie. It's not a God who, you know, well, you might be able to trust him. God who never lies. It is against his nature to lie. His character and his nature is truth. I love how it's described in Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should he change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill rhetorical questions? Our God is faithful. Our faith is built on promises. You know, we can talk about hope pretty loosely in our culture, can't we? In our language. I mean, I can say, you know, oh, I hope that it's going to be sunny this afternoon. I hope that my lawn doesn't need to be mowed. You know, my lawn needs to be mowed already. it's, It's still February. My hope that my lawn doesn't need to be mowed has been dashed already. But, you know, we can kind of use hope as a word for desire. We desire something, right? But that's not 
the hope of eternal life. That's not the hope of the gospel. That's not the hope found in scriptures. The hope that we find in scripture is something that's already done. It is finished. It is complete. It is fully trustworthy and faithful. It's not a desire. It is established and promised. Paul says here that it has been promised throughout the ages We can look back through scripture and we can see from the fall of man that God has promised a redemption plan and he's fulfilled his promise time and time again throughout scripture. You and I can see in our lives through our experiences where God has been faithful in the tough times through the good and the bad. He's trustworthy. He's a cornerstone, the capstone solid think of the song on Christ a solid rock I stand revealed promises throughout scripture he goes on to say that these promises are going to be revealed promises before the ages revealed made known or manifest through the preaching of the word the word of God is where he reveals himself, is how he reveals himself. You know, it's interesting, he says it's revealed through the preaching of the word of God. It doesn't say it's revealed through the preacher. It's the message. The message never changes. It's the word of God. It's infallible. He uses the foolish mouths of mankind, does he not? Even Paul said that. 1 Corinthians Chapter 121, he said, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews who demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom to us, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let no one who boasts boast, but to boast in the Lord. It's the wisdom of God, the foolishness of man, You know, Paul says that even he talks about himself as not being an eloquent speaker. It's a demonstration of the Spirit's power when the word is taught. It's not about the guy who's speaking it. Because, you know, we're, you, I, we're all imperfect sinners. But God has a perfect message, the good news, the gospel. So the preaching of the word pointed at at the appointed time. God chose when it's to be revealed. And thankfully, thank the Lord, we live post the cross, post the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we get to look back and we get to look forward to Jesus Christ. And we see there his revelation. He goes on, he's speaking of himself. He says, as an apostle, he's been entrusted or commanded by God our Savior. You know, Paul received royal assent to teach the word of God. He was commanded, directed, a directive, an order. You know, we have received, you and I, royal assent to share the good news of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3.15, you know, it's a familiar verse, right? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We have royal assent. We are commanded to be ready to share the hope that we have. 
he finishes his little introduction and talking about the one who sent him. He says, God, our Savior. I didn't really notice this till I was reading some commentators, and this is pretty uh, interesting, actually. You know, we tend to talk about our Savior. When we talk about our Savior, we talk, you know, in the Godhead, the fa- God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We talk about Jesus as our Savior, and we talk about the work that he's done, his shed blood for us on the cross. It's atoning sacrifice, overcoming death. And it's great, it's awesome. God, our Savior, implies the deity of Jesus Christ. If someone wants to come and attack the deity of Jesus Christ and say, oh, you know, he was just a man. He was not a man. He was fully God, fully man. And Paul attests to it here. He says, God, my Savior. Jesus, my Savior, is God. I love it. He acknowledges the lordship of Jesus Christ. He carries on in verse 4, and he says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So Titus, he's a primary recipient of this letter. He's been sent in a way to be like an overseeing pastor over these little churches and these communities on this, on this island. And he's sent with a purpose. The secondary recipient would be those, those little congregations. They're going to get this letter and it's going to uh, affirm the authority of Titus that he's been sent by the Apostle Paul and it's going to help uh, 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 build up the, uh, Titus as he does his work. He says, to my true child, Titus is a true believer, no questions. He was either led to the Lord by Paul or for sure Paul discipled him as, as he grew and grew in the things of the Lord. And I love that he says it's a common faith. He's a true child in the common faith. You know, the God's good news is for all, is it not? It's our gospel of Jesus Christ is inclusive. It's not exclusive. It's not for one race or color or creed or people or nation. It's for all. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul states that God wishes that not one be lost, but wish that all come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting because when the church first started going out in the early church in Acts, they, they first went to the Jews, right? They went to the synagogues and they taught about Jesus Christ and tried to convince them of the things. And Peter uh, he was staying at Simon the Tanner's house, and, and you remember the story well. Or, uh, he had the dream, right? And, and the Lord lowered down that blanket. And on the, on the blanket, there was all these animals that were unclean, right? Birds and pigs and stuff that didn't meet ceremonial law, mosaic law. And he said, take, kill, and eat. He said, no, I have nothing uncommon has ever touched my, or unclean has ever touched my lips. I will not. Three times. And God says, what I've called good, don't call common, right? Well, simultaneously, Cornelius was, and his family, he was a centurion, and they were seeking the Lord, and they were praying to him. They didn't fully know the whole story of the gospel yet, but they were seeking the Lord. And an angel showed up at their house and said, hey, there's this guy Peter at Simon the Tanner's house. Go get him. The Lord prepared Peter's heart to understand that the good news of Jesus Christ was for all. It's for all. It's common grace. It's a great account. And it's a great hope. And Paul says, in grace and peace, you know, you can't have peace without the grace of God. Amen? We can't walk in peace without understanding the grace, without extending grace. Without extending grace, it's pretty hard to have peace in our relationships around on the horizontal too, is it not? So he says, grace and peace, a typical greeting. So to Titus. Then he gets into the meat of why he's written this letter. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he sent a trusted man to Crete. This was not an easy crowd, you know, Later on, we're going to see what their own people said about themselves, that they were evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and not really good for anything. That's what their own people said about themselves in Crete. 
This is a tough crowd. You know, this was one of these places that you go, okay, it's a tough job, so I need to send someone really good. And Titus was someone that when you had a tough job, you sent Titus. You didn't go and it wasn't a guy you said, oh, it's Titus. It's a tough spot. We better not send him. Titus was the man. There's problems here. We're going to see later on in verses 10 through 16. There's deceivers. There's Judaizers. There's people that are, are teaching false doctrine for the sake of profit. They're trying to line their pockets. So appoint elders, he says. It's the presbytos. It's an elder, pastor, bishop in a church. It says elders, plural. I think that's important, actually. You know, a church is not to just have a single elder, Churches to have elders. In our church, we have multiple elders. We don't have a huge board, but we have duplicity. We're not just one. Elders are to be appointed. You, If you've been kicking around CTK for a while, you'll have noticed that we don't vote. We don't have elections on elders. This is why. Here it says you are to appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. You could go back to Exodus and you'd see Moses, right? You remember the story? He was trying to judge over all the people and he was run ragged. And his father-in-law Jethro came and said, you can't do this. You need to appoint trusted men over this bigger groups, the smaller groups, the smaller groups, the smaller groups. Appoint trusted men. Paul did the same thing in Acts chapter 14. He appointed elders, but not without praying and fasting over who? In Second Timothy, he gives good or First Timothy he gives good advice. He says, "Don't lay hands on speedily." So that's why we practice. We appoint elders in this church. It's not a huge elder board. We quietly do it. We do it fairly quietly. We bring a guy on, bring him up as training. Does he meet the qualifications of an elder? It's a daunting task, actually, to select people to be leadership of, in a church. Is it not? And that's why he lays out this list of qualifications and and, and this is not an easy list. And you may say, well, why are we looking at this? It's qualifications of elders. But you know what? It is a demonstration of what godliness looks like in our lives. So whether we're going to be in a leadership role in the church or if our leadership role is our family and our household, these are important qualities as a Christ follower. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, above reproach, that's the overall, that's the overall theme of what it means to be godly, of what it means to be an elder, is that if mud is slung, that it can't stick because there's no, there's no truth in it. The reality is probably very little mud should be slung against someone who's above reproach because there isn't areas of compromise in their life. Squeaky clean is one of the synonyms for the the phrase above reproach. Timothy adds, or in the book of Timothy, Paul adds that that uh, an elder should be thought well of those outside of the church. Above reproach, thought well of. As we hone in, he starts off, he says, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. It may not be popular in our culture, but the wording here is husband. The word behind it, if you go look up the Greek word, it's a masculine noun. God has ordained an order within our churches. And it's not about value that one is greater than the other, that one gender is smarter than the other, that one gender is more spiritual than the other. It is that God has ordained an order. So in the churches, the leadership, the eldership is to be male. And it's not a value, it's an order thing. It says here to be a husband of one wife, a one woman man. There should be not a hint of sexual immorality in this man. There shouldn't be a question. It's not absolution that it has to be a married man. Then Paul probably wouldn't have necessarily qualified. But there should not be a hint of weirdness in his relationships to other women. It should just be his wife, a one-woman man, or, or you know, as he, as he meets someone, he should be pure in his relationship. 
The qualifications affect the home, therefore. It says that the children are to be believers. You know, our ministry for you and I, whether we're in leadership or not, our first ministry is our home, is it not? The question I have to ask myself is, is Jesus Christ first and foremost in my home? Am I teaching my daughter the things of Christ? Am I using as many opportunities as possible to teach doctrine, to teach truth about who Jesus is to my daughter? Is my focus in our home as a family on Jesus Christ? Or am I caught up in the my wealth or uh, this or that, the other, whether whatever it may be? What is the focus? The idea here is that if you're unable to to teach your kids the truths of Jesus Christ, how can you teach others? How can you stand in the church and teach others? So does this house prioritize? It goes on to say that children are, he's speaking of his children, they're not, the King James says, accused of riot or unruliness. I thought, oh boy, um, I can have an unruly little girl sometimes. But I think the idea here is that it's not like just absolute chaos and craziness, that there's some order. God is not a God of disorder, is he not? He speaks about, about reaching in and, and, and bringing order into chaos. God's a God of order. You know, as I was thinking about this thing and the, the children are believers, every place, every commentator I read, everything I read, they all agreed on the same thing, and that's where I was leaning and feeling as well too. We understand that sometimes a godly upbringing doesn't necessarily mean that all the children serve the Lord. We've seen this, haven't we? Even if you were to go back to Judges and Samson, you know, his mom and dad were godly, godly people. And he kind of did this. Think about Delilah and all that stuff. Like, my goodness. But you know what? While he was under the roof of his parents, he came under the authority of his parents and under the teaching in the home. So I wouldn't say that if an adult children has wandered that it's necessarily disqualification as a leader. Here's the deal. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Again, a, a second time. Whenever we see something twice in scripture, we got to really pay attention to it. And the reason is we are... We are stewards. You and I are stewards, whether we're in leadership or not, of the resources that God has given us. We are stewards over the word of God in our home. And in the church, the elders and the leaders are stewards over the resources of God in the church. We are stewards and responsibly for God and man for spiritual matters, for church doctrine, the church resources, the testimony of the church and God in the community. Stewards should be open-handed and understand that everything is God's. Uh, we, he simply has, gives us a role in managing some of those resources, not close-fisted with the things. Let's be faithful and trustworthy. You know, it reminds me immediately of Joseph in the house of Potiphar. You know, we know the story well of Joseph, right? Sold into slavery, and he ends up in Potiphar's house, and, and He's so faithful that Potiphar doesn't have to worry about a thing. He's put over everything. He's trustworthy and faithful. Later on, he ends up in prison because of his faithfulness. He would not take what was not his. He would not allow his boss's wife to come upon him, even though she wanted it. He would not take what was not his, and he ended up in prison for it and suffered for it. He was trustworthy and faithful. In that place of prison, he was raised to a place of prominence within the prison. When he was released from prison, we know well, he became second to Pharaoh, and he was, he was equivalent to Pharaoh in everything but the throne. He was faithful, and faithful to his God. The apostles, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Wrong little colored sticky note. I'm kind of a little bit of a mess this morning because um, I couldn't get the printer to work. So I, I have handwritten notes, and if anyone has seen my handwriting, um, it's special. I normally can't read it. In, in my workplace, when we went to a computerized system, they were very thankful um, because otherwise uh, I didn't know it, but I, I, I wrote in Greek. 
But anyhow, so I have, instead of normally have all, I have all my reference text in my notes normally, but instead I have all these little colored things. This is, I digress. Trustworthy and faithfulness. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards over the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Speaking of the apostles, trustworthy. He carries on and he talks about things that were not to be and things that were to be. I'm reminded instantly of Colossians chapter 3. Do you remember Colossians chapter 3 where we're told to put off the things of the world, the things of our flesh, and we're to be clothed in righteousness, clothed in the things of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded instantly of that. He says here that as leadership, as qualifications for elders are not to be uh, arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent for greedy gain. The first to put off is arrogance or some translations will translate it as self-willed. The position of power of of leadership should not go to their heads. They shouldn't feel that they are dictators. Paul tells us in other places to have sober evaluations of ourselves. Does he not? Not think too highly, not think too low, but have a clear understanding of who God is and who we are. Not to be quick-tempered. It's the antithesis of what being meek is, isn't it? Meek is power under control. Quick temper is power out of control. Disastrous doesn't say we're never to be angry, but we're to be under control. Must not be a drunkard. We know the scripture does not absolutely forbid the use of any alcohol, but it absolutely forbids drunkenness. And we are reminded when we think about these things that we are not, as believers, to cause another brother or sister to stumble by our liberty and freedom. Leave you to ponder that. Must not be a violent, must not be a brawler, someone who's always settling the scores with his fist. It's pretty, pretty, pretty sad if your uh, elders and pastors came to church uh, every week with black eyes and, uh, you know, they were known for having fights outside the door. It, you know, it's not a good testimony. He must not be given to greed for gain. I love the King James here. You know, sometimes that old English just does it. For filthy lucre. Just, I don't know, it just gets the idea of it so much better. But, you know, the idea here is is that uh, as we are entrusted with resources, as we are stewards, we're not to be Judases and, and be people looking for peace, place to skim off the top, trustworthy and faithful. I'm actually reminded, too, you guys remember in Habakkuk, when we did the survey of Habakkuk? There's all those woes, right? And these match a lot of those woes, drunkenness, uh, stealing, ungodly gain, unjust gain, fighting and brawling that, was, that the Lord gave against the Babylonians. We're not to be these things. But we're to put on, as in Colossians said, we're to be hospitable, lovers of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. It's pretty simple, pretty self-explanatory really, is, are they not? Sober, self-controlled or sober-minded, sometimes we think of that one and think, oh, we've got to be somber and boring. I really like what Warren Wearsby said, said. says, this doesn't mean no sense of humor or always solemn or somber. Rather, it suggests that he knows the value of things and doesn't cheapen the ministry or the gospel message by foolish behavior. What a great way of talking about being sober-minded or self-controlled. Upright, or just, holy, and disciplined. One guy made this analogy. He said, upright and just in our actions towards our fellow man. Holy and set apart in our relationship before God. Disciplined in our, in our walk with God, with ourselves. He carries on and he says, speaking of requirements, that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also refute those who contradict it. You know what? We, as God's people, we're to hold on to the whole counsel of God's word. Matt reminded of us this, of this last week. You know what? Technically, this is a book. It's made on very thin paper. Very easy. The properties of the physical thing are inert. The words that are in it are not. The words that are in it are not inert. They are powerful and they are loaded. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for preaching, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That means all Scripture. That means that when we read the Genesis account, and we can't quite wrap our heads around it, that we don't take those pages and tear them out. It means that when we turn to Job and go, what is going on here? I can't figure this out, that we don't tear it out. It means that when we come to the minor prophets, that instead of tearing them out, we seek the Lord for help and understanding. It means that revelation is just as important as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the Acts. The whole counsel of God's word. As God's people walking in godliness, we need to cling tightly to God's word. You know, it's a sword. It's a double-edged sword. It needs to be taken out of the sheath. Remind of Eleazar, you, you know, I, um, in Second Samuel chapter 23, uh, it's talking about some of the mighty men of David. And uh, Eleazar was in battle and he, he held his sword, a physical sword, and he held on that thing so tight that he couldn't release his hand at the end of the battle. And the Lord gave a great victory as he warred. That's how we ought to be with the word of God. I love how the English spelling is because you drop the S and you get word. The sword, the word, the word of God. We're to study it. We're to come under teaching. We're to be able to teach it. For each of us individually in our homes, can we teach it? I was challenged by this in my quiet times a while ago. Just recently, I've read through Acts a couple times. And there's a couple times where, you know, Saul and Barnabas and those guys, they, they refuted this from the scriptures. They only had the Old Testament back then, who Jesus Christ was. And man, that was a challenge for me. Do I know God's word well enough that I could explain who Jesus Christ was from the Old Testament? He goes on to say, they should be able to teach it. There should be a gifting. Commitment to the truth. You should be able to, to engage in theological issues and contradict wrongs. The emphasis is on being actually more than doing, right? To be a man or woman of God rather than to do, 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 do. It reminds me of the Beatitudes. We're to be, we're to be, we're to be. And then Jesus he takes the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about what that looks like. The qualifications are not simply a gifting. The qualifications are not simply that someone has laid a hand on this man. The qualifications are not that. The qualifications are, do they, are they being, are they these things, these 16 characteristics? Now, I recognize this, per, this is a pretty tall order, is it not? I can look, go through these and I can see flaws in my life and you can probably see flaws in your life. And I'm thankful that it's by God's grace and his mercy that we can have any ability to serve God, that we can have any ability to attain these qualifications. It's the grace of God as he changes our life and moves us into godliness and, and roots out some stuff, cleans us up, sanctifies us. Here's why it was so important that Titus set up elders and overseers because there are many it says in verse 10 who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party and they must be silenced he says it's emphatic they must be silenced they are upsetting families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to so the problem endless babble some of us can be guilty of that. I can be guilty of that sometimes. But I think the idea here actually links closer to the last verse of this chapter where it talks about where someone's speech and their actions don't match, that their profession doesn't match their action. A disconnect. Insubordinate. It's the idea of rebellion. You know, in the military, if someone's insubordinate, they're court-martialed. They're, you know, they're punished and they're chucked out. That's the idea is that there's insubordinate people. They will not come under the leadership of God that's been established in the church. They won't come under the teaching of the word. They won't come under the, the elders and leaders and pastors that have been appointed. 
There's deceivers. They're messing up doctrine and they're, they're sending people astray. They're adding to the requirements. You know, we're saved by grace alone, right? You know, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, right? The just shall live by faith, repeated in Romans and Galatians. The just shall live by faith. We're saved by our faith in Jesus Christ alone, absolutely. And what was going on here is they were trying to add, remember last week Matt was talking about moral law, ceremonial law, and judicial law, right? And they were trying to add to moral law and the grace of God, and they were trying to add ceremony, and they were trying to add rules and regulations about what they ate and what they did and how many steps they took on the Sabbath. And they were leading people astray. That's what the Jerusalem Council was about. It wasn't about that you had to be circumcised or only eat this or not eat that. He said, in fact, they actually got their fingers in the purse. They are trying to get the money by teaching shameful, bad doctrine. He says, you, you need elders. You need people to refute this. You need to put a stop to it. It's emphatic. In this tough crowd, the Cretans here, it says in verse 12 that one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says, yeah, that testimony is true. Not a good testimony of your region. It's not talking about each individual person, but it's talking about that nation, essentially. Had a bad name. Probably made worse by wealth and privilege. We can probably very easily be in a society that's wealthy and privileged. Um, What's our name? What's our testimony in our nation and in the world? As God's people, are we a light on the hill? Are we a beacon? Or are we trying to hide? Paul says to Titus, you're to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith. Anytime that there is you know, refuting and correction, it's always to build up and restore. It's not to tear down and destroy. It's to build up faith to correct bad doctrine, to get things squared away, get straightened out. Serving, yeah, let's get things straightened out. Therefore, he says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn them away from the truth. So adding all that stuff. You know, serving God is not a cell phone plan. You ever try to figure out your cell phone plan? And, you, you know, here's your basic plan, plus this, plus that, plus this, plus that. So you go in there and they say, oh, you, for thirty nine ninety five a month, you can have blank. And, you know, my bill comes out at one hundred and twenty three seventy six. And what happened, right? It's add-on, 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 add-on so quickly, right? And that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is by faith, not adding law, not adding ceremony. It's simple. There's to be an outworking of our faith, but that's not what saves us. It's a marker of the reality of what's happened in your heart and my heart, not a cell phone plan that's added on. Verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. You know, this verse has been taken and twisted and mashed through so many times. Cults have taken it and said, you know what? Well, it's a license for, we do whatever we want. We're purified by the blood of Jesus Christ, therefore we can do da 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 and it's so wrong. Just look at the context it's in here. It's in this chapter, but what godliness looks like within the church, right? So it's not a license for sin. If anything, it's probably relating more to that Jewish law, dietary laws and such. You know, the food that God has created is pure. We can eat it. It's not going to defile us. It's what comes out of our mouths is what actually defiles us, it says in Matthew. It says, and then he carries on and says, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And it's because their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They're lost in their sin. He goes on, he says, they profess to know God but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for every good work. That's the idea of, these, of, of the defiled and unbelieving. 
They got their priorities mixed up. Their confession doesn't meet their actions. They talk out of the left and the right-hand side of their mouths at the same time. They're getting their doctrine mixed up. They're adding all this stuff. Our, our faith is to be simple. Our aim should be Jesus Christ. As we put our eyes on Jesus Christ, you know what he does? He goes through and he weeds out all these things. And this list of qualifications that we see, yeah, it says it's qualifications for elders, and it is. But it's also a measure of what godliness looks like. And I believe as we seek Jesus Christ as our first aim, he's going to come through and he's going to come through, oh, there's, and work on stuff in our life, and work on stuff in our life, and take away maybe our anger and our brawling, and teach us to be hospitable. And teach us to love the things that are good. It's the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our etern- the eternal life, our only hope, because we serve a God that cannot lie. We serve a God who cannot lie. So we put our faith in Jesus Christ. It says in First John chapter 5, 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God has <coughs> gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you so that you may, to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a promise from God. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can trust that you have eternal life because God does not lie. God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. So while we're in Crete, while we're living in a, a nation that may not be godly, that may be worldly, that may not be a great testimony, Let's shine as lights while in Crete. And let's ask the Lord to raise up faithful men to be leaders in our church. Let's ask the Lord to help us to be faithful leaders in our homes. And let's watch our doctrine. Let's hold to the word. I read, one guy said, he said, if you see someone with a worn out Bible, falling apart Bible, he said, not very often is their life falling apart. I thought, hey, that's cool. So let's keep our eyes on Jesus Christ as revealed through the written word. Amen? Amen.